And welcome to Gridiron Nation, everyone. The CFL Draft Edition, at least the post-CFL Draft Edition. I'm Jim Mullen. I've got Gord Randall uh, joining me. Adam Kordick is pressing buttons in the background. Uh, Mike Hogan is not joining us, and there's a simple reason for that. He, he's a staff member of the Toronto Argonauts. So if uh, he started talking about uh, some other draft picks or some uh, trade secrets from within the Toronto Argonauts war room, I I think there's a sniper trained on him to uh, take him out. Uh, Gord, uh, let's talk about the draft overall. Um, this was an odd one. Uh, I, I, I kind of call it the odds and ends draft when I really think about it. Uh, because there were a number of players uh, in this draft who had sat out a year, in some cases sat out two years, like Jordan Williams, the first overall pick. A uh, number of asterisk Canadians in there. Uh, thanks to the new national rule, um, uh, some strange picks, and it wasn't dominated by offensive linemen. Now, you compare that uh, to the NFL draft, where once you got past all the stories of uh, woe that seemed every first-rounder had, according to ESPN and the NFL Network, um, most of those picks uh, that they really talked about in depth had great lineage. They, they came from athletic families. They came from football families. Um, you know, even Joe Burrow, his dad, Jimmy Burrow, played up here uh, for six years in the CFL and won a great cup with the uh, Montreal Alouettes and then went into coaching for a lifetime. There was a, it was a real lineage draft and a real football culture draft. Uh, this draft up here, not the same animal. No, it wasn't. Uh, and you usually still have some lineage stories. I mean, uh, Dejan Brissett, second overall pick. You know, his brothers O'Shea Brissett playing for, uh, I think it's Raptors 905, but in the NBA T League. But either way, like NBA player essentially. And, um, you know, but not uh, football, but not football. That, that, that's my point here. Not a football lineage story, it's an athletic lineage story. Yeah, and, and what you had a lot of was uh, was a lot of underdog stories. A lot of guys coming out of nowhere. Uh, you just look at the first round. I mean, Isaac Adiemi Berglund coming out of Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, not exactly a football hotbed in the grand scheme of things. Uh, you know, Jordan Williams gets added to this draft late, uh, not not last minute, but late. Uh, you know, we was thought to be an American last year, and then realized, hell, yeah, well, my mom was born in Toronto, and now all of a sudden that changes the math for him in this league, and. You know, uh, Coulter Woodmancy, who goes, I want to say, sixth or seventh uh, out of Guelph, uh, the offensive lineman, you know, another late bloomer, uh, late adapter to the game. Theron Churchill, a guy who's 20, 25 already. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of guys with uh, kind of asterisks around them, I guess, but uh, definitely a lot of unorthodox uh, football stories from from players throughout this draft. Yeah, yeah, let's take a look at uh, Jordan Williams. Let's go through the first round here, uh, first, Gord, before we go team by team and then try to take a look at things from a uh, college program perspective. Uh, Jordan Williams, hey, this guy looks like he's ready to go. He wants to play football. He wants to play uh, professional football. A couple of years ago, the Hamilton Tiger Cats made a pick that uh, decided he'd rather be a record producer rather than playing in the Canadian Football League as a first overall pick. Uh, but they've got a guy that's motivated, and they've got a guy that's uh, going to be plugged into a linebacker position where there is room uh, for a national player with the BC Lions. For sure. I, off the top, uh, you know, Jordan Williams has made it very clear that 
he wants to play football professionally and that's what he wants to do. I mean, it was funny when Hamilton came up for their first pick and the broadcast went, you know, Hamilton's generally done uh, fairly well with their first round picks since, uh, you know, since so-and-so took over their drafts with, you know, with the exception of the first overall pick from two years ago who never played a snap for them. Um, but otherwise they've done great. Um, but Jordan Williams has made it very clear that he very much wants to be playing football and, it sounds like he was, you know, holding out for an NFL opportunity and just kind of thinking that that was his only shot. And um, he strikes me, and I've said this on a couple platforms already, he strikes me as that that classic uh, potential CFL diamond in the rough and that he's a guy that just doesn't quite have all the measurables uh, in the NFL and that he's, he's listed at six feet, but he's barely six feet. In fact, he's probably more like 5'11 and change. Uh, but otherwise, like, the athleticism is there. Um, he uh, can be a downhill guy. He can be a sideline to sideline guy. Uh, he can thump. Uh, and I believe his athleticism will translate well into coverage in this league. So um, I'm not going to say he's a slam dunk by any means uh, because I just don't think those exist when they're first coming into the league. But uh, I, I think that his profile is such that it will translate well to this level. And, uh, you know, I thought that BC for where they are as a franchise right now, like that's, that is, I think as urgent of a win now team uh, in this league as there is right now um, for a number of reasons uh, that team and the people running it need to win and they need to win quickly. Um, and so for them to, you know, make a splash trade up for the first overall pick, grab the headlines there, grab this guy who can come in right away. And, you know, an important part of the math for the lions too, I might add is that they have the depth at uh, national linebacker, to make that a bonafide national spot uh, in that they have Adam Conar under contract. They also have Jordan Herdman under contract. Now Jordan Herdman's apparently on a pretty big ticket. So that may not last very long at this point, but they do have the guys there where they can make that a legitimate ratio breaker position. And now that gives them some flexibility elsewhere, say on the defensive line where they haven't really had a lot of top notch Canadian talent in the last number of years. Yeah. Mark Chapman, by the way, is that first overall pick that decided not to sign uh, with Hamilton. Let's take a look at the uh, second pick. And Dejon Brissett gets selected by the Toronto Argonauts. I think he kind of went high based upon where he, where he was ranked. I, I saw him coming in at about a five to seven. Uh, but uh, as you mentioned, there's a family connection there to the Raptors and, and, and 905. Um, he's he's a, a local product uh, that went south of the line to an academy. His numbers in Richmond were phenomenal. And a matter of fact, he's the runner-up to uh, Nathan Rourke in the very first Cornish Trophy Award uh, because, of, uh, because of his output there. Unfortunately, he was injured the next year, took a redshirt season, went to Virginia, was injured uh, in training camp. And I think he was really superseded by another Canadian. Terrell Jana kind of moved in and took that role away from him. And we didn't really see much of him at Virginia until the last couple of games of the season uh, in, in, in a supporting role. But uh, uh, certainly he's shown that he, he can produce the numbers many different ways, not just as a receiver, but as a returner as well. Yeah, he's got the athleticism to contribute in a number of, a number of uh, facets in the game. Um, I, I said to you when we were prepping for the show, I do believe that had Dejan Brissett uh, duplicated something close to his last season at Richmond, his junior year. In his senior year, he would have been a day three a pick in the NFL draft. 
Uh, I think he did have have enough flashes, but you know, last year essentially was a lost year for him. And uh, I mean, that that's a uh, that's a theme that's come up a couple times with some of the guys that have that have been taken fairly high in this draft too. Is is that the last calendar year for various different reasons, essentially being a lost year? It applies to him. It applies to Travel Pinto, Stavros Kastatonis, Dan Bosco-Palombo, uh, the third round pick for the Lions, Court Hammond. Uh, you know, a number of those guys essentially had their 2019 not completely wiped out, but very much limited uh, for a number of reasons. And, and that, that became a bit of an unfortunate theme in this draft, too. Well, and one guy that actually had a year taken away from him was Isaac Berglund, mm-hmm. uh, which is next up, uh, selected uh, third overall. And I, I love Isaac Berglund uh, going to going to Calgary. Uh, I love it because he's got a great story behind him. There's a guy that was not happy to sit in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. So he looked for the next best opportunity, which was going to CJEP in uh, Lennoxville. And uh, he showcased himself in Lennoxville, put a heck of a tape together. And he told the story on our show, I believe it was back in episode seven, uh, we had him on, where he was a pest to every coach that he could get on the phone to where he pretended he was somebody else if the coach (laughs) first time around he tried to reach out to him and and, uh, he couldn't get a hold of him like he was relentless to get to the next level I like that level of, of fight in him and that level of motivation and over the last couple of years uh as a rush end I think he's yeah, I think he's proven to uh, to a lot of CFL scouts out there that he could get some traction in this league. I completely believe that IAB is going to have a solid career in this league. And I, in fact, I think he's got a good shot at being the first uh, elite uh, rush Canadian rush end in this league since Brent Johnson. Uh, I mean, the only other guy I can think of that comes close to that in the, in the ensuing years is Ricky Foley and, and he just didn't have the longevity, but you know, Brent Johnson, uh, you know, Ohio State guy to Kingston, Ontario, a uh, long, successful career at the BC Lions. I believe he's in the Hall of Fame already. If he's not, he will be shortly. Uh, you know, Isaac Ad- Adiemi Berglund is a guy that has the potential to be that next guy. And, and I mean, all you really need to know about Isaac Adiemi Berglund is that he sacked Joe Burrow multiple times this year. In fact, I believe he played against uh, SEC teams in his college career three times, and he had at least a sack in each of those three games. This is a guy that rises to the level and has shown. I mean, that LSU offensive line had three of their guys drafted in the NFL draft this year. That's a legitimate offensive line that he was rushing against. Uh, and, you know, he was able to beat those guys. So the word that I've used to describe him is he's got juice. And I, that's one of the trendy words in football these days is a guy that's explosive and, and has some go-get to him. And, and that's what Isaac Adeyemi Berglund is. And that was a tidy piece of business for the Calgary Stampeders uh, to trade down from one to three. Uh, allow themselves to move up in the second round where they ended up taking Travel Pinto. Uh, but they take the guy that there was rumblings that they probably were going to end up taking at first overall anyway uh, in Isaac Adeyemi Berglund, who I, I think is a better fit for them uh, now that Alex Singleton's long gone and that's no longer a national position for them at linebacker. You know, the, the rush end thing is maybe a better fit for them. So, I mean, the only – they were showing the, the depth chart. I believe the only Canadian D lineman they had under contract before drafting Isaac uh, was Derek Wigan, who's, who's a good player himself, but there's not a lot of depth there. So uh, that I thought was a good fit, uh, but another strong pick. And uh, when I was watching this draft, I, I don't like being this guy as an analyst. I like to be you know, cynical, critical, whatever you want to call it. 
you know, I'm watching this draft and I'm going, okay, first overall pick, Jordan Williams, fantastic pick. Second overall pick, Deshaun Brissett, great pick, good fit. Uh, Isaac Adeyemi Berglund, great fit, love the guy, good pick. Uh, next next pick we're going to talk about in a minute here, I'm sure, Tomas Jacardila, good pick, most pro-ready offensive lineman in the draft. So that's four out of four. Adam O'Clair goes at five and you're sitting there going, man, he lasted all the way to five? Like, this guy's a player. And, and so five picks into the draft, you're sitting there going, well, these guys have nailed it so far. <laughs> what yeah, are, well, no, that, that, that's where my surprise was with uh, with Woodmancy going five and then Eau Claire getting dumped down to six. That's where my right. first big surprise was. I yeah. was slightly surprised, though, with the next pick, which was uh, Thomas Jack Cordilla. And the reason I was surprised is because I thought Calgary was trading to three to pick up Cordilla mm-hmm. in that spot. I didn't think they were going uh, after Berglund. In fact, just before Calgary's pick, I put out a tweet you know, who gets uh, picked first uh, as a as a rush in? I, is it Berglund or is it Bennett out of uh, the University of North Dakota? And Bennett went uh, later in that round, but, uh, you know, two quality defensive ends there. But let's get to Cordilla. Uh, playing for Buffalo, starting as a freshman, uh, started nearly every game he was available for uh, with the University of Buffalo. And I think what's significant with that program is that they put two seasons together back-to-back that were record-setting seasons for rushing for the University of Buffalo and near the top of the MAC all-time in, uh, in terms of rushing. He knows how to get into the second level. Uh, I, I know uh, you and I watched him during that Penn State game, uh, uh, having some success against the very uh, talented uh, Penn State defensive front. Uh, I think the only knock that I hear on him is he's not a ferocious finisher. But if he can get upfield in the Canadian game, that's half the battle. Yeah, he, he moves his feet well, and he's, he's uh, fairly compact for an offensive line guy. Uh, definitely a guy that's a natural fit in the interior. And we talked about this on our show in the fall. Uh, we think he'll transition well to the CFL uh, for a number of reasons. One of the big reasons being that he's played his entire college career in the interior already. So he's not like a lot of these guys that we see who come out as tackles uh, and have to transition into the interior. Uh, and that's the reality in a lot of these college programs is that a lot of their best guys uh, in terms of athleticism are going to be out of tackle. Uh, and in the CFL being a pass-heavy league, it's an easier transition in the interior. But uh, TJK is a guy that's played in, inside his entire four-year career at Buffalo and has started all four of those years. He started as a freshman. Um, and so I, I think the transition is going to be good for him. And the other thing, too, is that um, this was, in a lot of ways, a bit of a luxury pick for the Eskimos. Uh, they do have starters on the offensive line. They do have a good set of national starters, David Beard, uh, Matt O'Donnell. Uh, you know, those guys are, are pretty well-entrenched guys on the, on the offensive line as nationals. But... Uh, they do need that next level of depth. And so uh, Tomas can go into that program and, and you know, try to push for a starting job. But if he doesn't get a starting job, ends up as the sixth man in his first year. And I think that's a good fit for him too. I mean, the one thing I've seen from him, uh, you, you talked about the finish. One of the things I've seen from him, he doesn't have a great consistent punch uh, in pass pro on the offensive line. Uh, you'll see a lot of clips where he's, he's catching rushers in the teeth a little bit. Uh, he's got the strength and the anchor to, to recover from that. But that's something he's going to have to sharpen up uh, in transitioning from the MAC uh, to the CFL. But uh, that's the one thing with his game. But I, I do think when you're drafting offensive linemen, I thought just because Edmonton has the starters on board already and he's in their backyard that 
they may have gone with Carter O'Donnell at this spot already, but uh, when they did go with Jack Cardilla, I thought that was a good pick in that I think he's the offensive lineman in this draft who's best uh, prepared to step in quickly if need be. Yeah, I, th- I think the Calgary Stampeders with that number one pick were watching Carter O'Donnell to see where he'd land. And, uh, you know, when there's a $25,000 bonus that goes out there, then you know he's going to go down the board in the CFL draft. And that's probably why they felt the flexibility that uh, they could uh, trade that one pick away, seeing that you uh, uh, picked up on O'Donnell there. Uh, speaking of O-linemen, Coulter Wood-Mansey gets pick number five. Big surprise to me, but a Start of a pretty good day for the Guelph program. Uh, one of four uh, Guelph Griffins picked on the day. Yeah, Kean Schaefer-Baker goes in the second round as well. Um, you know, it was a really strong day for the Guelph program, and given that they've transitioned in the last couple of years in terms of coaching staff, you know, Coach Ryan Shane's got to be very, very happy with the way things looked on his program there. Uh, Coulter Wood-Mansey, uh, you know, you talked about the knock on Jack Cardilla being he's a guy that doesn't finish. Coulter Wood-Mansey, the, the technique can be a little bit all over the place at times. This guy's nasty. He gets after it. You watch his reel, and it's just reel after reel of this guy finishing guys and putting them on the dirt. In fact, there was one, one clip in the, uh, in the reel that I think made it to air during the draft where there's a pass gone downfield, and he's well behind the play, and he just makes sure to dump his block and make sure that guy ends up on his ass. And, and that's what you want from an offensive lineman. You want a guy that – whether his block makes a difference on an individual play or not, he sees the value in letting the guy that he's blocking know that, hey, I'm coming after you. And, and, and that's one thing that Coulter Woodmansey has in spades. Now, I, like I said, unpolished guy. The technique can be a little bit all over the place with, with, with him. He's a guy that reminds me of he's got a really good natural strength and a natural torque to him. He reminds me a little bit of Jeff Gray. Uh, the, the guy that uh, came out of Manitoba a few years back was a competitive power lifter, had a cup of, cup of water uh, with, the, uh, with the Green Bay Packers in the States, and now I believe is still kicking around with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Uh, you know, Coulter Woodmancy reminds, uh, reminds me of him a bit. Uh, certainly the, a guy that has some ceiling in this league, though I don't know whether he'll be ready to go at this level right away. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, Toronto's in okay shape in terms of nationals, you know, Phil Blake is there, but they've turned over a few guys. Uh, you know, uh, Chris Manzel is retired now, for example. Um, you know, they, they do have some holes where they could use a guy to step in right away. Uh, so Coulter Woodmancy, uh, a possible fit there as well. Well, and he's also part of a uh, trivia question. He's the final part to the Johnny Manzel trade. This is the, one of the draft picks that uh, Montreal uh, dealt away. Uh, speaking of trades, Ottawa yeah, I picked mean, up. Sorry, I misspoke on that one. That would be Hamilton, not Toronto. Toronto's there in Churchill. We'll talk about him in a minute. That's right. No, and, and uh, it's easy with Banzel, who was in uh, Toronto. That's right. Also, to get uh, tripped up on that. Uh, Adam O'Claire goes uh, number six to Ottawa. Here's a guy that had a lot of buzz uh, going into the year. Some of that kind of gave way. I don't know what it was about the uh, Laval program this year. Catella say the offensive lineman who many projected at the start of the year to be at the top of this class goes in the eighth round as uh, as well uh, to Ottawa. So Ottawa's still a big believer in Laval guys, but uh, Adam O'Claire, uh, you know, guy uh, athletically, Swiss Army knife. I think he can do a number of things well. 
yeah, you can kick him out in coverage. You can slide him into the box as a, as a will linebacker or one of those flex nickel guys. Uh, the comp that comes to mind when you watch Adam O'Claire for me uh, is Antoine Pruneau, uh, a guy I believe he's a University of Montreal guy, but had a good, strong career in this league before injuries kind of caught up to him as he hit 30. Um, but uh, I made that comparison on social media during the draft, and, and funnily enough, I wasn't aware of this at the time, but I found out shortly thereafter that uh, um, Marshall Ferguson uh, had made a similar comparison himself uh, the day before. So um, that this is a guy that uh, I think provides some versatility on the defensive backfield. He's got some pop. I think where he fell uh, kind of under the radar was, uh, for starters, he's arguably not the best football player in his own immediate family. Uh, with it, with his brother being down with the Tampa Bay Bucks and potentially catching passes from Tom Brady this year. Although I think with Rob Gronkowski and OJ Howard still around and Cameron Brady, he probably won't be catching many. But uh, you know, uh, th- this is a a very decorated family. Uh, and with Laval, I can't speak to what happened with the Laval program this year. Uh, you know, they they uh, they still had a successful year and. You know, uh, is a is a totally different story. Um, I've been asked about this a few times since the draft because it caught a lot of uh, U-sports types by surprise because this is a guy that's a fairly high-profile name. And you know, the eighth round is the afterthought round. Like, Neville Gallimore got taken in the eighth round, I think, before Kital Asse even. And Neville Gallimore is a guy that I would say has a single-digit percentage chance of ever taking a snap in the CFL. Uh, and and that's that's the range in which Kital Asse got taken in this draft. And I'd heard a few things buzzing around, but uh, you know, I, I looked into it a little bit, and, and what it comes down to is he just he wasn't very good at. He went down to the Shrine Game in the states, and he struggled, uh, and uh, he he looked slow. Uh, he looked like he was struggling to the speed of the game around him, both mentally and physically. And uh, when you're when you're trying to project a guy to translate to the next level, that's a challenge. Uh, you know, that that's a big red flag if you see a guy that struggles with speed when he has a step up in competition. Uh, to say, hey, I think this guy's going to make a pro. Well, you know, that, that's a pretty big question mark if he's challenging against that extra level of speed and strength. Well, and uh, we were talking about this uh, off camera as well. Uh, you know, he, he might be the next Catel SA, even though we're talking about an eighth rounder here. He was projected to be by, by many in this first round, um, comparable to a Kirby Fabian mm-hmm. uh, in terms of having those measurables, have, having that even the bit of an NFL look, uh, at least at the start of the season, there was that sort of buzz around him. Uh, I don't think Fabian ever really lived up to expectations or, or his draft status. I think maybe for Catella say, we, we saw a tweet from him uh, earlier today talking about, uh, you know, having to focus, uh, don't worry about being disrespected, take the anger and reinvest it. Uh, into results maybe it's a really good wake-up call for him and a good reset button for him Uh, he's in as a draft pick but uh, certainly on the other side of the draft board yeah another guy he reminds me of a little bit is uh, Codger Spooner uh, the guy that came out of McGill a couple years ago Uh, has some power uh, very raw um, and and uh, you know footwork's a bit of an issue and stuff like that I, I think to be honest with you Jim too though I think what we may be seeing as well is is a little bit of a a dulling of the reputation of Carl Brennan and the guys that he produces at Laval. You know that that was long seen as a slam dunk automatic. These guys translate fantastically to the CFL offensive line factory, and we've seen a number of guys in recent years not live up to 
not live up to their billing coming out of Laval. You know, out here on the West Coast, Charles Viancourt's a guy that comes to mind right away who the Lions took with third overall pick one year in, in whatever year that was. And, and you know, he never really took a meaningful snap for the BC Lions. You know, um, go ahead. I'm going to go to this and hold this up. The former Pierre Lover too. Yeah. He's not even in the, in the sport yeah. anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think injuries were a big factor with Pierre, but you know, Carl Lavoie is another guy that's kind of been up and down in the, in this league. And I, I don't even know if he's still in the league or not too. So you know, it's, the, the sterling reputation of Laval for producing pro-ready offensive linemen, I think, has taken a little bit of a hit in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, I take no pleasure in seeing that. I have a, I have a ton of respect for Carl Brennan, and, and I don't really know what's behind it. But that may be part of what we saw here, too, is that, you know, the, it used to be that the top guy out of Laval was automatically one of your top offensive line prospects in the draft every year. And, and more and more of those guys have flopped in recent years. And, and I, I think that this may be a little bit of a reflection that the, the reputation of this Laval program for being an offensive line factory may not be what it once was. Uh, Riley Maitland gets uh, selected by Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan Husky. Matt, Matt um, Riley. Matt yeah, Riley. Yeah, Matt yeah. Riley. Obviously the hometown discount. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Matt Riley, uh, the hometown thing's great. And, and, you and I both know a lot about the cult, the football culture in Saskatchewan. Uh, he's a guy that's going to be an instant hit there. Uh, very uh, blue-collar type of guy. Uh, he, he, he's a smart football player as well. Profiles very, very well as a center at this next level. Uh, and, I mean, it's, it's hard to question Scott Flory uh, producing offensive linemen and the University of Saskatchewan producing offensive linemen. So, uh, again, that's another pick where I looked at it and I went, yeah, fit is excellent there. Uh, you know, and Jeremy O'Day has a very, very good relationship with Scott Flory as well. So uh, there's not a lot to be surprised about there. But uh, I think Matlin Riley's a good fit. Uh, they have some good young, uh, some older as well with Brendan Labatt kicking around still. But, you know, they've, they've got some good national offensive line talent there as well. Uh, Dakota Shepley, another guy that comes to mind. They did lose uh, a guy that we like quite a bit, Darius Blattick, uh in free agency this year. But, uh, and that's kind of what Matlin Riley hops in to replace uh, but he's a guy that, uh, you know, comfort level will help him hit the ground running. I think he's a smart football player. Athleticism's a little bit limited, um, but it's good enough. Uh, and he's a guy that, to me, profiles pretty well as a, as a center at the next level here. And next up, uh, Hamilton uh, gets the pick again. Mason Bennett, uh, defensive end, rush end, All-American at his level. Uh, out of the University of North Dakota, one of the Winnipeg guys that went just down the road. Uh, to play at UND. I had an opportunity to uh, meet with him a couple of years ago. Uh, Great guy. Uh, Represents really well. Uh, The word on him is that he is highly coachable uh, and and he learns like a sponge. Uh, When we saw him uh, earlier in his development, he needed uh, needed to add some size, needed to add some strength, had that long body that you want. Out of a out of a defensive end, uh, obviously the training has paid off for him. Yes, it has. I, I really like the pick for Hamilton in the spot here. Um, you know, I thought Hamilton had a pretty good night. Um, I, I'm not as high on Coulter Woodmancy as as they were, but uh, Mason Bennett to get him. I mean, I, I am a huge fan of Isaac Adeyemi Berglund. I think he was the best Russian in this draft. Mason Bennett was the only guy close to him, and and they were a clear top two. Uh, Mason's got a, a good profile as well. Uh, the one thing for me with Mason Bennett is I wonder where he's most successful playing 
at the CFL level. Um, uh, his body type is a little bit, his body type and athletic profile are a little bit tweener uh, in that he's a little bit, little bit skinny for a, for a D tackle for a three tech uh, and, and maybe not as stout against big interior offensive linemen. Uh, but I'm just not sure if he holds up off the edge. And, and we've seen a number of prospects like this over the years. Uh, if he can hold up on the edge, then this is a great pick uh, for Hamilton. I'm just not sure if that's the case uh, with Mason Bennett. But uh, I do think he's a, he's a very solid football player, uh, had a strong career at UND. Uh, I think where they were in the draft uh, being late in the first round here with, with IAB already gone, I think this is a great pick for them at uh where are we at now seventh or eighth uh, whatever it is we're, we're, we're at eighth and we're going to ninth but you know uh uh producer adam cordick sent me a note and he's absolutely right because all three of us have had this discussion about mason bennett is we were expecting maybe a little more uh on the stat line from mason bennett mm-hmm. this year in terms of sacks and in terms of production and absolutely. we really didn't get that out of him in comparison uh, to the previous season. So maybe maybe that's where um, there was a bit of a flip. Even though you, you take a look at, at, at most of the rankings coming into this draft, Bennett was just ahead of Berglund. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why I said earlier, I threw that question out there. I, I really thought Berglund was the guy. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, finally on draft day, that was proven. So uh, I, I think I think where that comes from is that I would say that if you take an assessment of their whole game, Mason Bennett's probably a better all-around football player. Yeah. Isaac Adeyemi Berglund's highs, his specialty areas, are better and more impactful than Mason Bennett's at this point in time. Uh, so Isaac Adeyemi Berglund, especially being a pass rush guy in a league where you know I think the ratio of passing is still over 70%, you know, that, that is a more impactful skill to translate to this level uh, than being a solid all-around guy like a Mason Bennett is. So uh, that's that's kind of where I see that that difference being. And you're right. I think Mason Bennett only had, I want to say, four and a half sacks this year. That's not high over a, over a 12-game schedule. Uh, and, and so, you know, you were, you were kind of hoping for him to take the next step this year, as you said, and, and I don't think that that necessarily materialized for him. Now, you know, Hamilton's had a, had a pretty good resume with, with uh, national development over the last number of years, especially on the defensive line. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how that turns out for him. But I, I think he's good value. This was a good, appropriate spot for Mason Bennett. Yeah, just one thing about Berglund I want to add before we get out of this uh, defensive end co- uh, conversation is that uh, I believe that Berglund had two block punts, did some crazy things on special teams, and returned one of those block punts for a touchdown. So there's a, there's a, there's a special teams component to him that probably put him over the top in addition to some of those things that you mentioned, Gord. Well, you talk about ways to impact a game. I, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I watched every Southeastern Louisiana game last fall. Cause it, that's just not the case. But every time I turned on the tape and kept one eye on what was happening with Isaac Adeyemi Berglund, the dude jumped off the screen. Like he found ways to impact every game that I saw him involved in this year. And, and that just wasn't quite the case with Mason Bennett. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of times we were watching the film, you're going, he's doing a good job. He's doing his job right now, but he's not noticeable. He's not a guy that is making splash plays and impact in the game. And it felt like Isaac Adeyemi Berglund had an affinity for doing that at, at uh, Southeastern. 
Darren Churchill uh, goes uh, out of Regina to Toronto in the ninth and final uh, pick of the first round, Gord. So here's the first, like, off-the-board pick for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I'm watching the first round, and well, this is going fairly according to script. Uh, Coulter Woodmancy I didn't necessarily have going as high, but as you mentioned, uh, that offensive line class was fairly wide open, and I know that he was gaining a lot of steam late. Uh, Theron Churchill was a guy that was pretty off the board for me. Um, and, uh, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, you know, I watched a few Regina games this year, another guy that, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing for an offensive lineman, but another guy where never really stood out when I was watching them. I'm not, I wasn't sitting there going, Oh, look at that guy. Um, you know, that guy is clearly a top notch offensive lineman at this level that never really stood out to me, uh, not to sell him short. The other thing with Theron Churchill, though, is he's one of those guys that you know played a full junior career and then transitioned into U Sports ranks, and so he's uh, 25 already. Um, and the broadcast on Thursday night uh, tried to spin that a little bit as a good fit for Toronto. Uh, they they need some some uh, some maturity on that offensive line and a guy that can jump in right away. I don't know, like a, a guy that's already 25. And don't get me wrong, like Jordan Williams. Uh, the first overall pick is 27. Uh, so, you know, it, it's that, that's not outrageously old, but that's on the older side. It, uh, you know, you look at the NFL draft, a lot of the guys going to that NFL draft are 20, 21, 22. You know, 25 is a full three years down the road. Picture some of these guys going to the NFL draft being in their third and fourth year in the NFL. And that's where Theron Churchill is biologically in his life. So uh, that one was a little bit of a surprise for me. And uh, as a result, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't spend quite as much time on Theron Churchill, but uh, I do know that Stephen Bryce is, I guess now former coach, speaks very highly of him. Um, and and so if you're the Argos, the big thing with a guy who's that age on the offensive line is you know, there's a, a notoriously difficult transition for offensive linemen from college to the pros in any brand of the sport. They're going to hope that he makes that. They're going to have to hope that he makes that transition quickly because all of a sudden, if he doesn't, it takes him a couple of years. Now you got a guy who's approaching thirty already by the time he's taking a meaningful snap for you. So um, I, I wasn't as enthused by that pick, and and frankly, it's funny. Like the Argos had three of the first eleven picks in this draft. I thought they got a better player at eleven than they did at nine, and and I thought they got a better offensive lineman at the end of the second round uh, than they did at the end of the first round. So. Uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that I'm proven, proven wrong on that. Um, but that, that's, that's just kind of what I've seen to this point. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the prize, uh, surprises, some of the steals in this draft. Uh, we've already alluded uh, to a couple of them. And uh, we'll wrap up our look at uh, the CFL draft when we return on Crown Grid Iron Nation. From the Simelkameen Valley in British Columbia to the Western Cape of South Africa, our global network of grower partners produce the finest fruits and vegetables for Canadians. Those partners make Crown Produce fresh at its best. And welcome back to everyone tuning in on YouTube or uh, listening on podcasts. For those of you listening on podcasts, you can't fully appreciate this. Uh, this is uh, Jersey Night uh, on Crown Gridiron Nation. Gord, explain to the people what you're wearing right now. What are you wearing, Gord? I am wearing a. Uh, honestly, this is one of the best value buys in my life I've I've ever found. So I, I managed to find a uh, connection to a Chinese uh, like Jersey factory. 
So this is a Pavel Bure Canucks flying skate jersey, uh, complete with assistant captain's badge, everything stitched on legit, CCM tags, and even a tie-down strap in the back. Cost me $32 Canadian. Uh, from 503 Sports, I'm wearing an Oryx Blue Wave jersey, the original uh, professional uh, program for none other than Ichiro Suzuki. Uh, and then he uh, moved on to the Seattle Mariners uh, at the age of 27. And by the way... Wait, are they sponsoring us next season? Is that what's going on? Oh, well, here? that'd be nice. Placement? But, but you know, I will get a mention in for an internet competitor out there. Um, uh, Dorktown, uh, that's doing a fantastic series on the history of the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, John John Bois of I think he's SB Nation primarily, is he not? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's, it's uh, fantastic. And as a Mariners fan, he he gets us. Yeah. He, well, if you want, if you want somebody who's plugged into the Seattle sports uh, ethos, by the way, uh, Mina Kimes, the national uh, ESPN analyst. Uh, is a is Seattle born and bred, and she's been all over that series. Oh, uh, she's as Seattle as it gets. I, I'm a big fan of Mina Kimes, but anyway, okay. I digress. Anyway, let's get back to football because that's why people are here. And, and uh, she does football too. Oh, oh no, but <laughs> talking about the CFL draft, uh, let's let's talk about some of the steals in the CFL draft. Uh, one that I particularly like. Uh, was a former U Sports uh, Rookie of the Year, uh, won the Gorman Trophy. Nick Daly, uh, uh, out of the uh, originally Regina Rams program, ran into some friction there with Steve Bryce, uh, the head coach, left the program, went to the Okanagan Sun, finished up his university career uh, with the uh, Saskatchewan Huskies. Uh, yeah, a little bit of turbulence along the way. Uh, didn't have the uh, straightest... Uh, uh, line in terms of uh, in the way things went in his uh, private life away from the game. But I think uh, all of those trials, along with his talent, might make for a fantastic professional defensive line. I think so. Uh, Nick Daly is another guy that's uh, pretty good at getting after it off the edge. And uh, there's a number of picks in this draft that, that kind of fit that mold of guys that, for whatever reason, may be undervalued and, and may not have realized their potential yet. Nick Daly's another one of them. And I know we're going to talk about winners and losers in this draft shortly here. Uh, you know, between him and Brandon O'Leary Orange, uh, I thought that Winnipeg got a couple really uh, high ceiling picks uh, in the third and fourth round that could potentially uh, give them some very strong return on their dollar. And I mean, with the record of Kyle Walter uh, in that program in developing nationals and, and finding national talents, I would not bet against them. Uh, speaking of, uh, of receivers, and uh, I, I think speaking of pluses, uh, even though there were some minuses there, Travell Pinto going to uh, the Calgary Stampeders, and he would have been a first-rounder last year. Without question, he would have mm -hmm. gone in the top five last year. But uh, he ran into uh, a doping violation, and it wasn't performance-enhancing. Yeah. And uh, it uh, it certainly wasn't complimentary to his record. It was a big mistake by a young man. But uh, I'm all about second chances. And Treville Pinto is a guy that can do so much for a team as an athlete. We saw it at UBC in terms of him playing both ways in a number of games a couple of years ago, producing interceptions and touchdown receptions as a receiver and being a returner. 
he can do so much. And you were mentioning this off the air. He pairs up well with Calgary's next selection, Ryson John, who's under an NFL contract right now. I don't think Ryson John could necessarily be marked in there as a steal, maybe penciled in there as a steal because he's a because he's right now NFL property. But I, I think he's on his way back here. I think eventually he is. Uh, I am, when you talk about winners and losers in this draft, I think the Calgary Stampeders, and I am loath to say this, but I think the Calgary Stampeders with their first three picks uh, hit a home run in this draft. Uh, they get Isaac Adeyemi Bergman, the guy that they wanted anyway at first overall from a lot of reports that I've heard. Uh, but the best pure pass rusher in this draft, they get him at third overall after the trade down. Uh, you know, they, I, they didn't get fantastic value out of the trade. It, it was wild that trade for first overall when you contrast it to the NFL draft in that all it cost the BC Lions to trade up two spots in the first round of first overall was to trade down three spots in the second round. <laughs> Whereas, I mean, if you were to pry that first overall pick last week from the Cincinnati Bengals, that would have cost you four first round picks. <laughs> like it would have been crazy. Um, but anyway, I, I digress a little bit. The, the Stampeders, I thought, uh, played this draft just about perfectly. And the combination of players they got in that first three picks, I think was an absolute home run. Uh, Calgary is a team that has a long, long record of, of producing strong national talent and having good national receivers. You know, recent examples of guys that have left in the last couple of years being Brad Sinopoli, Lamar Durant. Uh, you know, those guys are both there. Some of the best national receivers in the league to be honest with you. Uh, and that's what Calgary's had dating back to the, the days of, you know, Mark Borichter or uh, Vince Danielson. Uh, that that franchise always seems to have at least one really, really good national receiver. It has been, it was a weakness going into this draft. I thought it was a thin spot for them. All of a sudden, it's a strong spot again. Uh, I, I think that for starters, a lot of this hinges on my opinion on Rice and John's chances in the States. Um, I am of the opinion, and we touched on this in last week's show after the NFL draft, I am of the opinion that Ryzen John likely isn't going to be down in the United States long term. Uh, so being of the opinion that you're going to get Ryzen John, the two receivers you got in this draft are a guy in Travel Pinto that had he not had this drug test and, and the fact that he hasn't played a snap in a year following him around is very clearly in the conversation as the top receiver in this draft. Uh, so the top receiver in this draft went at second overall. So that's a guy we're talking about potentially where Travel Pinto belongs if he doesn't have that that red flag on him uh, as far as CFL programs see it. Um, so, but best pure athlete of receiver in this draft is Travel Pinto. Um, I, I think that you'll find that he transitions quite well to the CFL. The one question on Travel Pinto is: Is he big and physical enough to last at the pro level with the bigger and stronger dudes out there? He's only about five ten and a bit, one ninety. That's not big for a pro receiver. He's going to have to run away from dudes and avoid taking too many big hits. Uh, and you're probably not going to get a lot out of him in the blocking game. However, you combine that with a Ryzen John, who is the complete polar opposite skill set of Terrell Pinto in just about every way. And that's a good thing. Uh, you know, Ryzen John, whereas Travel Pinto's size may be a question mark, size is the last question mark on Ryzen John. The guy's 6'6 and change. Uh, he's running at about 235 right now, I've heard. Um, because he's working on trying to transition to tight end in the States. Uh, this is a big boy, but a guy that can move. He's still got four, six, five speed. Uh, you know, you'd like that to be maybe a little bit, little bit quicker 
but I think he's also a guy because he's so big. Uh, the waggle, uh, if they if they decide to line him up in the slot, uh, will help him out to get started instead of being from a stop. Uh, and 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 just a match of nightmare. Uh, you think of uh, sending a guy with that body type down the seam, and you know you don't have to create a lot of space if you're Rice and John. They can throw to you in blanket coverage, and you're still going to come down with that catch. You know, 75% of the time. I know this. He single-handedly beat a team I was coaching in high school with literally that play <laughs> in a provincial semifinal one year. Uh, I still haven't forgiven our safety for it, but then again, I mean, the guy's in the NFL now, so what are you going to say? But um, you know, those are those two receivers have these skill sets that are just so varied that I think the combination of the two of them could be deadly. And this could be a class where you're talking about what Calgary got out of this for a lot of years uh, between those first three picks. So there's the two receivers and Isaac Eddie and Bergman. So, so you're talking about the hype of one team with their first three picks, but if I'm judging by Twitter, the, the thing that got people really excited with the team that made their first two picks were the BC Lions. They moved up to number one. We talked about that. We got the two-time Cornish Trophy winner, Nathan Rourke, a quarterback going 15th overall, tying the record with Jesse Palmer for a quarterback in a CFL draft, going to the BC Lions. And a lot of people didn't know that he was born in Victoria, but the BC Lions are making sure Everybody knows he was born in Victoria. And, of course, we have uh, talked about him uh, since, uh, since he was in uh, JUCO, since he was in high school on this show. And, uh, the, and I've had the opportunity to see him play live. Uh, the one thing that really struck me from his first year, which was his sophomore year at Ohio, and his next year was the, the pickup in his arm strength and the choices – that he made as a quarterback when he threw the ball. Running is always 50% of his game. But, uh, but the way he improved as a quarterback from that year to that year wasn't necessarily present into his senior year. And I think that's one of the reasons why he wasn't a UDFA in the NFL. He went into the NFL draft ranked 26 in terms of all quarterbacks. Uh, when you sort it out at the end of the day, he, he dropped by about five spots with other guys moving up in, in UDFA and uh, draft picks. Uh, but um, here's a guy that uh, I would think that if he was American, CFL teams would be looking at him anyway. They would. And, and the, you know, some of the people I talked to in the, in the Lions front office essentially said as much to me. Uh, and Ed Hervey, I think, has also said that publicly on, on uh, local radio here on TSN 1040, uh, that you know, their assessment of this guy as a football player, independent of whatever his passport was, was that this guy was a CFL-caliber quarterback. Three-year starter at Ohio in the MAC, uh, very decorated uh, player in the MAC, uh, you know, mixed up the run in the past. I would say one of the concerns in terms of transition with Nathan Rourke is that he did make so much hay on the ground which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if you watch the film, a lot of his a lot of his yardage, a lot of his numbers on the ground are designed run plays. That's pretty rare in the CFL. When you look at quarterbacks uh, making hay on the ground, it's usually you know receivers and defensive backs vacate the area, the rush over pursues, and that quarterback takes advantage of space. Nathan Rourke can absolutely do that, but don't necessarily expect uh, the the balance of production uh, that you saw from Nathan Rourke at Ohio to carry over to the pros because I just I, I don't think some of the scheme stuff for him translates in terms of throwing 
Uh, what he's going to have to adjust to is he's going to have to make a lot of the adjustments that most uh, college quarterbacks have to make to the pros these days. He's going to have to learn how to go through multiple reads. He's going to have to learn how to stick into a pocket or redefine the pocket when the rush and the protection starts breaking down around him so he can find targets downfield because extending those plays to throw is the most dangerous thing in football. And so that's, that's the skill that he's going to have to develop. But you don't invest a second round pick in a guy if you don't think he's got a legitimate shot and the Lions absolutely there's no question he's staying a quarterback you'll see him in short yardage packages for sure and hopefully some other sub packages in year one and the Lions plan at this point now that they've got this guy is the roadmap for him is two to three seasons tutoring behind Mike Riley uh you know uh, if knock on wood Mike Riley happens to get hurt uh, in the next couple of years, then then hopefully he's ready to go. But that's ideally the plan is is two to three seasons behind Mike Riley, and then hopefully he's the heir apparent. Because like I said, 15th overall pick is is some pretty legitimate draft capital to invest into a guy. Uh, the Lions can carry three, uh, even up to four quarterbacks, but they can carry three quarterbacks. But with the new CFL rule, they only have to dress two. Um, you know, it'd be really nice if they were dressing three. Uh, like like we've had for decades before, so you could confirm that level of development and getting those touches in short yardage situations for the guy. So, uh, I mean, the question is, you know, does he dress every game uh, as a backup quarterback, or uh, is he uh, up in the box or along the sidelines not dressed? Uh, I think that's something that might be uh, at least a partial challenge to some of his development uh, in in the first year. If he does get to dress, even though he's only about six foot one, I kind of see him as a mini Strevler because the one thing that becomes apparent when you watch this kid, he is as tough as nails, man. He can, he, the reason why he gets yards on the ground is uh, in terms of quarterbacks at that level in the Mac, he's tough like no other. This kid is tough. Yeah, Jim, he is, he is a very tough guy, and, and I don't want to sell his size short, like you said. Uh, I think he's officially listed at 6'2", uh, and about 230, something like that. He's not small. Uh, I don't see him as the size of a Chris Strebler. I mean, Chris Strebler ran like a fullback. Uh, Nathan Rourke's not like that. I don't think it'll be the same type of runs, but I, this is a guy that I think will be very effective in short yardage immediately as he learns the finer points of the game to be a, an effective all-around quarterback in here. And I think another thing that needs to be pointed out, too, is that the situation that he's fallen into is I think as good of a situation as you can fall into in this league. And that Mike Riley is a guy that I, I would say he's altruistic at his core. He's a guy that will take on that mentorship role with a plum. Uh, and, and the timeline lines up in that, like I said, I think two to three seasons is, is realistically what you can expect Mike Riley has left in the tank. And that lines up pretty well with hopefully a, a ripening Nathan Rourke ready to take the reins. Uh, I mean, I'm very excited about the possibilities to it. I would, I would, uh, overall, I would probably characterize myself as cautiously optimistic uh, with Nathan, Nathan Rourke's chances. Uh, you know, our, our old friend, Andrew Wadden, I was, uh, I was on with him today on, uh, on TSN 1040 here in Vancouver. And uh, he went out on a limb and said that he thinks by the end of his career, Nathan Rourke's going to be considered the best Canadian quarterback of all time. I'm not going to go there yet. I think I'm not quite on that hype train yet. Uh, but I, I can't bet against Nathan Rourke. You and I have watched him so closely over the last couple of years. We've seen this guy. The, one of the things that stands out about him is this kid is a gamer. Uh, he will do what needs to be done 
to win football games, whether it's being a guy who's going to rack up three touchdowns on the ground or who's going to pass for three touchdowns in the air. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I would not bet against a Nathan Rourke, and I think he's got all the intangibles you'd need to be successful in this league. We'll just see if it happens to pan out that way. I think the last uh, steal of the draft for me would have to be Stavros Katsatonis, uh, yeah. the uh, defensive player of the game from the 2015 Vanier Cup for the UBC Thunderbirds. Uh, I think he fell down to uh, late in the fourth round, uh, if uh, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, to Hamilton. I, yeah, to Hamilton. Uh, tell me, uh, tell me about what Katsatonis brings, because a lot of what you were saying about Nathan Rourke finding a way to win. And, and, and gutting situations out. I think you've seen that, 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 that kind of physical presence and, the, and that way that uh, Katsatonis has asserted himself as a Thunderbird. And once again, here's another guy that spent a year on the shelf uh, due to a uh, drug violation. This, in this case, it was performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, I think what you see with Stavros Katsatonis, very different body type, very different skill set, but he shares – a lot of the the mentality of his former teammate Taylor Loeffler. Uh, I, I think the one year those guys played together at UBC was a match made in heaven. Uh, mm-hmm. And and Loeffler is much longer uh, than than Stavros Katsatonis is. Katsatonis is only about five ten and a bit. Uh, he's a lot more compact of a player and more of a ball hawk than Taylor Loeffler, less of a thumper. But this is a guy that wants you to know that he's on the field. Uh, and and by that I mean he will find a way to take a lick at offensive players as much as he possibly can. And I love that about Stavros Katsatonis. The dude is uh, just a pit bull of a football player. And on top of that, he's shown some really good natural ball hawking skills and some really good instincts from the back end. I believe he is the steal of this draft. Um, And I, I think the only thing that could maybe work against him is just the fact that he's had to be off of football for a year. So maybe it takes him a while to get going, but if I'm Hamilton, I am just head over heels with having this kid in the fourth round. I think that's a that's a fantastic pick, and and I think they're going to see some some just about immediate dividends from him. I, I got I got to think they're moving him though from from half to safety. That's usually the way the numbers games uh, work. Uh, he played half his entire time. Uh, at UBC, are his ball hawking skills enough for him, uh, considering his body length? He's showing enough speed from that position. Is that going to be the, the the test that that separates him to one degree or another? I think, if I'm not mistaken, he did rotate over to free a few times uh, in the years after Lawford left at UBC. Uh, wasn't necessarily his main position, but he definitely spent some time at free safety. So it's not foreign to him. Um, and, and I wouldn't say he's a jump off the page athlete, but he's one of those guys that I think makes up for not being an exceptional athlete at the pro level, uh, with having excellent nose for the ball, excellent recognition skills and an excellent break on the ball. And, and, and I do think that that will serve him well. Uh, I also think he's the type of guy that's going to endear himself to a coaching staff and is going to go at, go in there and get after it in whatever role you set him up in and, and be that guy that's, that's fighting for whatever snaps he can get. And, and when you're talking late in the fourth round, if that's all you ever end up getting from Stavros Katsatonis, that's still a successful pick. Uh, and so I, I really, really like that pick because I think you're talking – where drafts really fall – I mean, you and I were talking about this when we were prepping for the show off the air. Where drafts really fall when you're analyzing drafts, where your real success is, is mining value. 
right? So it's not necessarily addressing positional scarcity and trying to plug holes in your roster. As fans, we tend to look at it that way and be like, okay, why aren't they plugging this particular hole? It's an obvious hole. But if you go into the draft with the mentality of, hey, we've got to pick the best players at this position because we need a guy at this position, you're likely going to end up reaching for guys that you don't necessarily love. And, and that may pan out for you. It may work out. It also is much more likely to not work out than if you were to just sit back and say, you know what, we're going to, whatever position we're at, we're going to pick a guy we love. And I'll jump back to the NFL draft real quick. I'm a, I'm a big Seattle Seahawks fan in the NFL. Seattle Seahawks draft uh, a couple weeks ago in the NFL draft was almost universally panned by, dra- by experts, draft picks, all those kinds of guys. I, you know, when they're doing the letter grade thing, I don't think I ever saw anything higher than a C plus. Uh, universally panned. But if you watch the interviews with the Seahawks brass, it's very, very clear that for starters, within the building, they are head over heels with how their draft went. Because the guys that they absolutely loved in this draft, they managed to find a way to get with their first three or four picks. And it didn't matter to them who outside of the building loved that. So, you know, when, when, you're, when you're in a draft where you find the real winners, I talked about Calgary at the top end of this draft, where you're going to find the real winners is who gets a DJ Lalama and, you know, a guy who was the last draft, draftee in the draft a couple of years ago who's still making a good career for himself in the CFL now. You know, where do you get those guys who are, who are – where do you mine value from those mid to late rounds? That's what's really going to make or break the draft. And that's where I really try and look into draft classes to see, okay, who did a good job here. It's one of the reasons I like Winnipeg's draft. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Montreal's draft is very intriguing to me. Both of those teams I just mentioned didn't have a first-round pick. And yet some of the guys they got were either guys that I thought were steals where they were or, in Montreal's case, high upside guys. You know, Montreal gets both Mark antoine Decroix, uh, who is the best athlete at defensive back in this draft by far, uh, and, and also gets Carter O'Donnell. Should those guys end up in the CFL and healthy, that's the best draft class in this draft, bar none, no question. Well, uh, here, here's the thing about Montreal's draft board, and, and I think Danny Machoch is going to be a fantastic general manager uh, in, in this league, <laughs> maybe just based upon this, but also based upon his experience, of course. Three of the first four picks by the Montreal Alouettes were Montreal Carabans. And mm-hmm. the reason why I think that's such a, such a, a great proposition, not just because Danny knows those players, because he coached them and worked with them, we know what the window of development is in many cases for national players. It's usually three years after the draft, maybe two years. And what happens after two years, after a year in an option or, or, a, or a two-year deal is a number of these players who get drafted outside of their hometown will go home again. They'll take yep. the hometown discount. They'll yep. move on. If you're dra- uh, drafting Quebecois players in Montreal – you know you got a captive audience. You know you got the hometown boys. You know that you can uh, develop with them and work with them. And he knows he can uh, work with them because he's worked with them for the last four years. I think that I think that's a very smart move to go local, especially when you get outside of about round two or round three. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think that one of the things that needs to factor into the draft process in this in this league when you get into the mid rounds where a guy is more than likely going to be going back to that college next season uh, is okay. Who do we as an organization trust to shepherd our guys in the right direction? What organizations do we trust 
to send guys back to that we know they're going to get something out of that year and it can kind of be you know, a de facto minor league system for us. Uh, and, and so that's why you see, you tend to see CFL organizations go to some of the same pipeline universities for guys. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, if you look at Danny Machocha, the guys that he went for, uh, he also picked Cameron Lawson out of Queens. Uh, you know, there, there are organizations there, Carter O'Donnell out of Alberta. And then the other guys, uh, I think, I think three in total from the Montreal care bands, uh, you know, he knows the coaching staffs there. He trusts that wherever those guys end up for next fall, I mean, in Carter O'Donnell's case, it could end up being with the Indianapolis Colts. Um, and I think it likely will. Uh, you know, he trusts that wherever those guys are, they're, they're going to develop over the year, whether they make the Alouettes roster or not. And so, especially as a team that didn't have a first round pick, I really like the approach from Montreal. They just went, you know what? Let's just swing for the fences. You know, we like Cameron Lawson. He's a guy that's a lot safer than the other two guys. But, you know, Marc-Antoine Decois has had some serious injury issues uh, in his last number of years. Um, and he may also end up sticking in the States. Carter O'Donnell's a guy, my personal opinion, is that he's going to be in the States for, for a couple of years, probably at least. Uh, and, and you may never see him. But, you know, that, that like I said, highest upside draft uh, and certainly the highest variance draft in terms of boom bust it's got to be the Montreal Alouettes. Hey, uh, Wednesday, uh, we will be back with another show. It'll be a live stream starting uh, in the afternoon at uh, 1 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, the uh, Cornish Award, the Cornish Trophy, we will get to hand that trophy out uh, to the winner. We have five finalists. I believe we have one favorite, Gord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and and it's not the aforementioned Nathan Rourke, unfortunately. Uh, as as good as he was again this year, uh, and he did have a good season. I mean, uh, we just saw uh, one of the most electrifying seasons from a Canadian college football player ever. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, we, we talked about this on our program last week. You know, I, I, Chase Claypool had a fantastic season too. Uh, I think in any other year, he's probably walking away from this award uh, with the award. But, uh, you know, Chuba Hubbard, just a transcendent season at Oklahoma State, and it's, it's, it's only a matter of that coronation. To be honest, it, it kind of reminds me of the NFL draft this year where it's, it's been kind of a, it was kind of a fait accompli for, for months on end that Joe Burrow was the guy at number one overall, and uh, there wasn't a lot of drama around that. You know, I, I'd love to build up drama and sell the product, but I, I don't believe there's a lot of drama around who's going to end up walking away with the Corners Trophy this year. Well, that's uh, Wednesday uh, morning or afternoon, depending on where you're at. It's uh, going to be live streamed out on the Canadian Football Hall of Fame website and the Football Canada website. So there will be two options for you there, and it will also be an archive. So uh, that's when we'll talk to you next is on Wednesday. And, Gord, it's a suit and tie day. Even if you're oh. home, it's a suit and tie day. Look, as long as you don't make me shave, we'll be fine. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll Six years in, you never have, so we should be fine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, th thanks for joining us on, uh, on the uh, Gridiron Nation, everyone, and uh, we will talk to you on Wednesday.